Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 18th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In our last presentation in this commentary, which discussed the final verses of John chapter 2, and which was titled Christ and Antichrist, we sought to describe what it was that the apostles and others had believed the Christ to be from their own professions as they are recorded in the gospel accounts, and which they themselves must have attained through their understanding of the words of the prophets. So by understanding what the apostles had believed the Christ to be, only then can we properly understand what John could have meant where he wrote in that chapter and asked, Who is a liar, if not he denying that Yahshua is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So he must ask, how could one deny the Father by denying that Yahshua is the Christ? Then John had once again led us to discuss the inseparable nature of Yahshua Christ and Yahweh God the Father, in his declaration that each denying the Son has not the Father either. He, being in agreement with the Son, also has the Father. To summarize our conclusions briefly, as well as answering our own question, the only valid Christian understanding is that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, the Father as the Son, the invisible God and Creator, taking part in his own creation as king, redeemer, and savior of his people. To understand any differently is to imagine that the words of Yahweh, which were recorded by the prophets, are lies, and that Yahweh destroyed his own law, transgressing it, rather than understanding how Christ had fulfilled the law while at the same time never having transgressed the law. Yahweh promised that he would be savior of Israel and that he would be their king, that he would be their redeemer, and he attested that there would be no other. Yahweh attested that he alone was God and that there was no other God formed, either before him or after him. Yahweh also attested that he is the Father, while at the same time having promised a Son, whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, as we read in Isaiah chapter 9. And of that son, it was then said that of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The only way that all of these promises could be true is if the Son is indeed the Father, just as it says in that passage of Isaiah. They are not different persons, but rather they are one, just as Christ had said that I and my Father are one.
The denominational churches do not understand this relationship, as it was a matter of contention that was argued by the Judaizers from the beginning. In the world of the New Testament, discounting those who are still pagans and ignorant of Christianity, only the Jews claim to worship God without Christ, denying that Yahshua was the Christ. And the Judaizers ostensibly sought to uphold the validity of the Jews. John referred to them as those leading you astray in this very same context in verse 26 of that very same chapter, 1 John chapter 2. Therefore, in order to settle the differences, turning to worldly philosophies, the early Roman Catholics had developed the false doctrine of the Trinity. Yet in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul of Tarsus, who must have known that there would be contention over this issue, had written that, and without controversy, from verse 16, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, or nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Therefore, Yahshua Christ was God manifest in the flesh, and there being only one God, as Paul also declared in chapter 2 of that same epistle, where he plainly said, for there is one God. Christians must accept that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, and that there is no other God, nor any other so-called persons in a so-called Godhead. In fact, if we accept the translation of Godhead, as the Trinitarians typically, typically do, Paul did not explain that Christ was some different person in the Godhead. But Paul did explain that the fullness of the Godhead was in Christ, where he said, according to the King James Version in Colossians chapter 2, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The 1899 American edition of the Roman Catholic Douay-Rheims version of the Bible, the Catholic Bible, reads that passage almost identically to the King James Version. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead corporeally, which is a fancier way to say bodily, after the word corpus for a body. So Christ is not a person in the so-called Godhead, but rather the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ. Therefore, he must be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one. And the Trinitarians are proven wrong even by their own translations. We left off our commentary with the end of 1 John chapter 2, and John's assertion that if you know that he, meaning God, is righteous, you also know that each who is practicing righteousness has been born from of him.
The denominational churches may interpret this to mean that a man can choose for himself to practice righteousness, or at least what he thinks is righteous, and somehow become born of God by his practice. But that cannot be true. And John will later clarify what he means by saying, born from of him. It cannot be true by the words of Christ himself, who said in Matthew chapter 7, where we read, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Therefore they must believe in Jesus. And in thy name have cast out devils? Therefore they must believe in Jesus. And in thy name done many wonderful works? Therefore they must believe in Jesus. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What is true is that every man is right in his own eyes, as we read in Proverbs chapter 16. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the spirits. What is also true is that no flesh can imagine to be righteous, as we read in the 143rd Psalm. For in thy sight shall no living man be justified. But fortunately, what is also true is that Yahweh declares what is right, and that Yahweh has promised to justify the ancient children of Israel. As we read in Isaiah chapter 45, But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret. In a dark place of the earth, I said not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. In Yahweh, and this is just a few verses later, because he declares things that are right, and therefore he does that in verse 25 of the chapter. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified, so all the seed of Israel shall be declared righteous regardless of what sins they committed, and shall glory all the seed, every single offspring of Jacob. So John must be referring to something besides a man's apparent conduct, where he wrote that each who is practicing righteousness has been born from of him. These men, whom Christ rejected in Matthew chapter 7, could not have been rejected for, merely for some sin. There was no sin attributed to them that he rejected them for. As Christ had come to die so that sins would be forgiven. So they must be rejected on some other basis. He rejected them on a basis that I never knew you. As he also told his adversaries, ye are from beneath, I am from above. 
Ye are of this world, I am not of this world, as it is in John chapter 8. And in that same place, he denied them that God was their father, where we read, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Neither could John himself be implying that one may become a child of God merely for one's behavior. Since he already said in the opening verse of chapter 2 of this epistle that if one should do wrong, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Yahshua Christ, and he is a propitiation on behalf of our errors, yet not for ours only, but for the whole society. So ostensibly, the children of God may sin, and the children of Israel would inevitably sin, as John also wrote in chapter 1 of this epistle, that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But even when they sin, they are still the children of God, having an advocate in Christ. John cannot be interpreted in a manner which forces him to con contradict himself. So neither are the wicked considered to have a propitiation, even if they are perceived as being in the world. They don't have a propitiation. But for now, we will commence with John, with 1 John chapter 3. Where in spite of their sin, John exclaims to his readers, Look at the sort of love which the Father gave, that we should be called children of Yahweh. And we are. For this reason, society, or the world, does not know us, because it did not know him. When the children of Israel are obedient to Yahweh their God, they naturally become alienated from the world. The Apostle Peter describes the process in chapter 4 of his first epistle. Therefore, with Christ's suffering in the flesh, you also be equipped with the same mind, because he who suffers in the flesh ceases from wrongdoing, or sin. I'm citing the Christogenian New Testament. For which no longer, in the desires of men, but in the will of Yahweh should he live the remaining time in the flesh. For enough of the time is past, perpetuating the will of the heathens, having walked in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revelries, and lawless idolatries. While they are astonished, they blaspheme at your not running together in the same excess profligacy, referring to the heathens. The word heathens there, in this context, is an appropriate translation of ethnos, which is typically nation, as in this context it refers to non-Christians of any race, all of which were pagan and all of whom lived licentiously. Just read the Greco-Roman histories. Christians who keep the commandments suffer these same things today. 
as the world seeks to demonize and even dehumanize them. The same things which the Jews had also done to Christ. They demonized him. They said that he had a demon. They dehumanized him. And then they killed him. But here, we should wonder about and even investigate what it is to which John was referring, as he is referring to God the Father and not to Christ, when he wrote, Look at the sort of love which the Father gave to us, that we should be called the children of Yahweh, and we are. John is making this statement in the context of sin, where John had attested in the previous chapter that Christ was a propitiation for sin, and where he already explained that those who deny that Yahshua is the Christ have not the Father, and therefore they could not have been his children. Sin is still the subject in this chapter, as we shall see in subsequent verses. It must be noted that the majority text wants that clause, and we are, which is attested in the older witnesses, in all of the great uncles that we cite here, the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanists, the Alexandrinus, the Ephraim Siri. In his gospel, in John chapter 11, the apostle recorded an exclamation of the high priest that one man, referring to Christ, should die for the people. A statement which was made from his own corrupted perspective, even though it was also true in other ways from the perspective of God. So John responded to that exclamation, and he wrote, And this he spoke not of himself. <coughs> I'm sorry. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. And there it is evident that the children of God were already scattered abroad as John had written that. And they were already the children of God, even before they could have ever heard of the gospel of Christ. In this verse, this first verse of 1 John chapter 3, John expressed the fact that the privilege of being recognized as children of God comes on account of the love of God which he has for his children. Whereby saying, and we are, he is affirming that they are already his children. This privilege is what Paul had referred to as huiothesia, which is the position of a son, properly, that's what it means in Greek, but which the King James Version unfortunately translated as adoption. However, Paul also informed us of the scope of such an adoption, as it is limited to the children of Israel, the same Israelites of the Old Testament, where in Romans chapter 9 he defined Israelites as my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. So, if somebody's not one of Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, 
Ostensibly, they cannot be Israelites. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites? To whom pertains the adoption? I'm reading from the King James Version. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are, referring to those same Israelites, whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. All of these things which Paul mentioned were exclusive to Israel in the Old Covenant. And in that explanation, Paul affirms that they are exclusive to Israel in the New Covenant. And that Israel is the same Israel. Because furthermore, since Christ took upon himself the seed of Abraham so that he could be made like unto his brethren in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16, and he was therefore the firstborn among many brethren in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, those brethren must also be kinsmen according to the flesh, as Paul explains here. There is no other Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see that Yahweh God had loved the children of Israel, even in spite of their many sins, which they had committed both during and after the Exodus, where we read, For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God. Yahweh thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because Yahweh loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has Yahweh brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Then we read a little further on in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Ye are the children of Yahweh your God, for thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, and Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. It is this love and these children of God to whom John must have been referring in his statement here in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 1. But in spite of this love, and in spite of all of these promises, on account of their sin, the children of Israel, who were the children of God, were scattered abroad, as John had said in John chapter 11. In the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, and in the subsequent prophesied migrations to which they would be subjected. But later, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, Yahweh announced that he will, at some future time, regather those same children, as we read in chapter 43, in a prophecy which was written to the children of Israel after the Assyrian deportations. And None of them were Jews. None of them were ever called Jews. In fact, not long before Isaiah's time, in 2 Kings chapter 16, 
around the time of Elijah the prophet. That is the first time that the word Jews appears in scripture, and the Jews are enemies of Israel because the divided kingdom, in the divided kingdom, they had turned on one another. Now, even there, they are not properly Jews, but there is no way that these children of Israel could ever have been called Jews. And they never called themselves Jews. They were never identified as Jews. It's absurd. They are already off in the Assyrian deportations by the time that Isaiah wrote this. And Yahweh says, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. He actually gave them to niggers. He gave them to Nubians. Those nations were invaded by Nubians just before Isaiah wrote this. That's where he gave them to, to his enemies, the blacks of Africa, the enemies of God. He gave these people, these white nations, up to his enemies. Since thou, speaking to the children of Israel, I'm sorry for the digressions, I can't help it. Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee, speaking to the children of Israel, in captivity. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Again, speaking in reference to the children of Israel. In a similar prophecy found in Isaiah chapters 59 and 60, those chapter divisions are not always in convenient places, but when we move from one chapter to another, that doesn't necessarily mean that the subject changes. So in Isaiah chapters 59 and 60, there was also a statement of the purpose of Christ from verse 20 of chapter 59. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh, as for me, this is my covenant with them, saith Yahweh. My spirit that is upon me, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith Yahweh, from henceforth and forever, speaking only to the children of Jacob. Arise, now we're in chapter 60, arise, shine, for thy light is come. This is a prophecy of Christ. And the glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee, which is symbolic of the resurrection. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people the darkness of the day of the crucifixion, being an allegory in itself. It had a prophetic significance. But Yahweh shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles, or the nations of Israel, 
that are scattered abroad, shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising, with which we should probably cross-reference Acts chapter 9, verse 15 that Paul's mission was going to go to the nations and kings of the sons of Israel, if you want to read the Greek properly. Lift up thine eyes round about thee, and see, all they, all they gather themselves together. They come to thee, thy son shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side the gathering of the children of Israel in Christ. That's who he came to gather, the children of Israel, the children of God scattered abroad. Only the children of Israel were ever considered to be the children of God throughout the Old Testament. And even in their captivity, the promises remained exclusively to them and their seed forever, which is their physical offspring then in spite of the fact that Adam was the son of God, Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the other branches of the Adamic race were not acknowledged by Yahweh as being his children, as Paul explained in Acts chapter 14, that Yahweh had, in times past, suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. And they all went off into idolatry and fornication while Yahweh had promised preservation for the children of Israel. That Abraham, through Jacob, would inherit the earth. So when they sinned, the children of God were scattered abroad in their punishment, as we have cited Isaiah. And John had said that Christ came to gather in one the children of God which were scattered abroad who are the very same Israelites whom Yahweh promised to gather here in Isaiah chapters 43 and 60, which we have just cited. This process of scattering and gathering and the reasons for it are summarized. They're summarized in several places. In Jeremiah, it speaks about making a full end of all the nations that I have driven you to, but I will not make a full end of you. It's summarized in several places, but it's summarized best in Amos chapter 3, where the word of Yahweh says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is how to read a book in context and its author. Yahweh God himself never lies or contradicts himself. And he never changes his will. Nothing has changed this. And Christ himself certainly never said anything which would change it as God does not change. Rather, Christ upheld it when he said, I am come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Concerning this very thing we read in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore, because he doesn't change, because it was going to be Israel that would be regathered, because it was going to be Israel which would get mercy. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Then in Hebrews chapter 13, Paul declares, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, upon the coming of the Messiah, 
Over 700 years after Amos and Isaiah, we read of the purpose of Christ in Luke chapter 1, in the words of Mary. He has hoped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Then a little further on in that chapter, in the words of Zacharias, the son of, oh, I'm sorry, the father of John the Baptist, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke in Isaiah, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, didn't have some collective, ethereal group of believers on his mind when he was saying we and us. He only had the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, on his mind. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And once again, perhaps 25 years after the resurrection, in Romans chapter 15, Paul of Tarsus had attested, Now I say that Yahshua Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Confirming the promises made to the fathers, which was made to them and to their seed or offspring forever. The identity of the children of Yahweh could not have changed from Old Testament to New Testament. Or God, Christ, the apostles, and all of the prophets are liars. But thankfully, God is true, and it is men who are the liars, especially all the men who claim to be pastors and teachers in these denominational churches. They are all liars. Christ came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and therefore he is not a liar, and neither are his apostles, nor his prophets. However, Judea, at the time of Christ, was a Roman province, not a godly kingdom. It was a Roman province, which was dominated internally by Edomites and others. These Edomites were always counted among the enemies of God, and they are the objects of his wrath, as he had spoken in Obadiah, Malachi, Isaiah chapters 34 and 63, and elsewhere. They are the objects of his wrath on the day of wrath, which Christians still anticipate. The Israelites of Judah, who had returned to establish Jerusalem, whose number was only a little more than 42,000, had settled in and around Jerusalem and Galilee. But after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel and Judah, 
most of the rest of the land of ancient Israel was occupied by Edomites, which we see in Ezekiel chapter 35. By Edomites and whatever other remnants of the Canaanites had remained, with only a few Israelites who had escaped captivity. After the building of the Second Temple, by the end of the second century before Christ, all of the aliens had been converted to Judaism, all of those Edomites, which is attested by the first century historian Flavius Josephus and corroborated by early first century Greek historian Strabo of Cappadocia, who died before Josephus was born. Then once Judea was made a kingdom subject to Rome, the Edomite Herod was appointed king, and Edomites came to dominate the government and the priesthood. It is these to whom John referred where he spoke of the Antichrists and said in chapter 2 of this epistle that they went out from us, but they were not of us. Concerning Christ, we read in our own translation of John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, that he came into his own land. And the men of the country received him not, but as many who received him. He gave to them, and this is the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which were bestowed on the early apostles and disciples. He gave to them the authority, which the children of Yahweh are to attain at some point in the future. To those believing in his name, Paul called that the earnest or deposit of the Spirit. Not those from a mixed origin, nor those from of the desire of the flesh, nor from of the will of man, but they who had been born from Yahweh. The historical circumstances of ancient Judea, as well as the Greek grammar, uphold the veracity of our translation. But the denominational churches have twisted these and many other New Testament passages to support their own claims that merely by professing a belief in Jesus, one may somehow become a child of God. Yet Christ himself denies that, where he told certain men who claim to worship him, that I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, in Matthew chapter 7. There are many other examples where the apostles speak of false prophets, false brethren who sneak in unawares, as Paul explains. There are many other examples. Matthew chapter 7 is just the most obvious one. All of this is relevant to John's epistle, and it is important to understand, because in the parable of the wheat and the tares, just as the wheat was planted by God, and as the tares were planted by the devil, in that same manner were the people of Judea, being either Israelites or Edomites and Canaanites. The gospel of Christ was meant to divide the wheat from the tares. The gospel is meant to sort them out, that it would be manifest what each of them are, either wheat or tare. As Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, life and spirit, 
and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The fraud will always be exposed with the gospel. Christ's sheep heard his voice and ultimately turned to him. While he had told his enemies in John chapter 10, but you believe not because you were not of my sheep as I said unto you. They were not his sheep because they were not Israelites. Rather, they were Edomites, and for that reason, they did not believe him. Then Christ had also said, as it is recorded in the very next verses of that same chapter, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them to me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So the sheep, having a propitiation for sin, not even sin can pluck them out of the hand of Christ. His profession in that same chapter of John, that he had come to gather the sheep, is in fulfillment of another prophecy, which concerns the ancient children of Israel, which is found in Ezekiel chapter 34, written at a time when Israel had already been sent into captivity. In fact, Ezekiel himself was in captivity. My sheep wandered through all the mountains, and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. And then a little further on in verse 11. For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, not my son, not some other God in some silly Godhead, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. The prophecies of Ezekiel being the word of God, we cannot imagine that the word of God, that the word made flesh, who professed to be fulfilling the prophets, would contradict himself in any way. And therefore the sheep he came to gather are the same sheep which he had much earlier promised to gather, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the physical descendants of the ancient Israelites. There is a similar prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, which leads up to the promise of the new covenant. And we won't get quite that far. We're only going to read one verse. Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him. And remember, none of these Israelites were ever called Jews. None of them were Jews. Jews aren't even Israelites. He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. 
Christ is Yahweh God fulfilling that promise that he would come and gather his sheep. As we read in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. So Christ is the shepherd of Israel who is addressed in a prophecy of Asaph, a prophet of the captivity in the 80th Psalm. And the Apostle Peter referred to Christ, where he had said in chapter 2 of his first epistle, For you were as sheep going astray. Peter is addressing Christians of Western Anatolia. But now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Then in reference to the promise of the return of Christ, in chapter 5 of the same epistle, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a a crown of glory that fadeth not away. For anyone to be able to return to their shepherd, or to the shepherd, they must have been Israelites in the first place, as Asaph also declared in the 79th Psalm. So we thy people and sheep of thy pasture will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. The mercy which they receive in Christ is an answer to the punishment they suffered in captivity. And Asaph had written in the 74th Psalm Asking, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why does thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Asaph's question was rhetorical as he also prophesied the mercy of God upon Israel. So we read in Jeremiah's Lamentations in chapter 3, For Yahweh will not cast us off forever, but though he causes grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. So the children of God, the lost sheep which he came to gather, have not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and they cannot change. The same children of God, the ancient children of Israel and their descendants, who were the subjects of the promises in the Old Testament, are the subjects of Christ in the New Testament. Neither can they lose their position as children of God when they sin, Because if they sin, they have an advocate with the Father, which is Yahshua Christ, and nothing or no one can take them out of his hand. So now John writes further in reference to them. Beloved, now we are the children of Yahweh, and not yet has it been made manifest what we shall be. People ask me all the time what we are going to be or be like after the resurrection, and I must refer them to here. Because if John didn't know, I sure as hell am not going to know. We are the children of Yahweh, and not yet has it been made manifest what we shall be. 
We know that if he is made manifest, we shall be like him, because he's firstborn among many brethren, since we shall see him just as he is. While John did not record it in his gospel account, in his own gospel account, we read in Matthew chapter 10, in words attributed to Christ, that it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. Now we read in Luke chapter 6, once again in words attributed to Christ. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect or perfected shall be as his master. So here John wrote that we know that if he is made manifest, we shall be like him, because that is what Christ had taught. Yet, as he also said, we do not yet know exactly what that shall be, as it has not yet been fully revealed. This is in spite of the fact that John must have also heard the words recorded in Luke chapter 20, which are also attributed to Christ, where he said in reference to those who would have eternal life, neither can they die anymore. For they are equal under the angels, and they are the children of God, being children of the resurrection. If you're a child of God, you will be a child of the resurrection. And if you attain the resurrection, of course, you're a child of God. John is not contradicting any of those statements, but rather, being humble, he is not claiming to know any more than what is recorded. Now, because his intended readers are children of God, John says, And each who having this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I'm sorry, I needed a big drink. Here, in regard to that hope, as only the ancient Israelites had the hope of the promises, John is actually also giving advice to the children of God. But first, in regard to the hope of the promises, Paul of Tarsus had also explained that it was only made for the twelve tribes, for the descendants of the twelve tribes of the ancient Israelites. In Acts chapter 26, where he was speaking before Herod Agrippa II, and he said, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Of course, Paul never thought that he stood and was judged for Zulus, or maybe Mandingos, or Hutus, or Tutsis or some sort of Canaanite Arab sand niggers, or Indian squat monsters, or South American taco goblins. Paul's suffering at the hands of the Jews, he never thought would be on account of them. He probably would have quit. Paul's suffering, and the burdens he was beset with, and the reasons for the Jews persecuting him, were all on account of the 12 tribes and nobody else. At greater length, 
the advice with which John gives here, Paul also gave to his readers in an epistle where he also explained that they were descendants of the ancient Israelites, but that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed. Each who having this hope in him purifies himself. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul and John are consistently on the same page in their teachings. Paul being a lot more verbose. So as John proceeds... In verse 4, we see that he certainly was teaching the same things which Paul had taught in that passage. But while Paul had given specific examples of sin, John speaks in general terms. Each who is practicing wrongdoing also practices lawlessness, and wrongdoing is lawlessness. Yet here John makes a distinction, which Paul did not make in 1 Corinthians and which is either unnoticed or ignored by all of the denominational translations. In the Greek scriptures, the noun, hamartia, is commonly sin, and the verb, hamartano, is commonly to sin, as they are typically translated in the King James Version and others, seeking to demystify the concept of sin. We translated the words by their meanings, to ordinary Greek readers of the time, as hamartia, a noun, is defined to mean a failure, fault, or error of judgment, or guilt, or a sin. So sin is a failure. It is a failure to keep the commandments of God, which brings guilt under the law and subsequent punishment. The verb hamartano is defined to mean to miss the mark, especially of a spear thrown, to miss the target, to fail to hit the target. Generally, to fail of one's purpose, to go wrong, to do wrong, to err, or to sin. It was the purpose of the children of Israel to keep the law, as they themselves had promised when they received it at Sinai, and they have failed in that purpose. But here where John speaks of sinning, he uses another verb, poieo, which Liddell and Scott define as having been used in two general senses, make and do. The first being to make or produce, to create, to bring into existence or invent, to bring about or cause. And the second being, much like another verb, prasso, to do, to practice, to be doing, to act, to operate. This verb appears four times previously in this epistle. 
in First John chapter 1, verse 6, where the King James Version has practice, or in verse 10 of that chapter, where it has make. In chapter 2, verse 17, where it simply has doeth. And in chapter 2, verse 29, where it has practices once again. This verb, poieo, is not a special verb since in various contexts it appears over 600 times in the New Testament. Yet there must have been a good reason for John's having purposely used the phrase ho poieon tain hemarion, which is a definite article with the verb poieo as a substantive, and then another definite article along with the noun for sin to describe one who is practicing sin or practicing wrongdoing, as we translate the phrase here. Rather than simply having used the verb for sin, for committing a sin, which is hamartano. So John is making a more specific statement than merely referring to the incidental sinner. John makes the same distinction once again in relation to both sin and justice four times in each of verses 7 through 10 in this chapter. Admittedly, here I struggled with this translation, and I still do, not because I am unsure or confused about what John was saying, but because it is difficult to fully express in English in a plain translation without a detailed explanation in notes the concept which John was conveying. So in light of John's statements in verses 7 through 10 in this chapter, we may have translated this verse to read in its primary sense, which is to make or create, each who is authoring wrongdoing also authors lawlessness, and wrongdoing is lawlessness. And that verb poieo, in another form as a noun, poietes, is the word from which we get the English word poet, to author a poem. So translating poieo in this context as authoring is certainly a valid interpretation. Here the King James Version translated the Greek word anomia, which literally means without law or lawless, as transgression of the law. But one must have a law in order to transgress that law. So the translation is truly not accurate. Lawlessness can mean without law, and that doesn't mean you ever had law. You just be lawless, like one of those Hutus or Zulus or Tutsis that never had the law. As Paul had said in Romans chapter 5, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Only the children of Israel were ever given a law. As we read in the 147th Psalm, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh.
So you don't need to have the law in order to be lawless. You're just without law. And of course, you could be a transgressor of the law in ignorance because you never knew the law. But if the law wasn't given to you, sin is not imputed. So neither do you require forgiveness. So neither do you require mercy. So only the children of Israel required the mercy and propitiation in Christ, and he only came for them. Nobody else has anything to do with him. Get away from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Beat it. Scram. Go thy way, as he told the Canaanite woman after he called her a dog. Therefore Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Nobody else receives the adoption of sons except those who were redeemed. Nobody's redeemed unless they were under the law. Nobody was under the law unless they're descended from the ancient children of Israel. And because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And once again, the adoption only pertained to Israel, according to Paul in Romans chapter 9. And the Galatians, being descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, were indeed Israelites who had been under the law and therefore redeemed in Christ. However, here the context of John's statement in verse 4 is in reference to those of his readers who had purified themselves from wrongdoing. So they were merely sinning, and they were not necessarily the authors of sin. But on the other hand, the children of God departing from sin upon receiving the gospel, only the enemies of God are left to the devices of sin. They are practicing sin. And therefore we see that the separation of the wheat and the tares in the gospel of Christ is made evident, is made fully evident. The Ephesians, also having descended from ancient Israelites, Paul of Tarsus wrote very similarly to his readers in Ephesians chapter 5. First, where he admonished them to conduct themselves as children of God, and he exhorted, Therefore, you must be imitators of Yahweh, the example having been made in Christ, as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ has also loved us, and surrendered himself on our behalf, an application and sacrifice to Yahweh for an essence of sweet aroma. And this is the same love which God had declared for the children of Israel in Deuteronomy. But fornication and all uncleanness or greediness, you must not even specify among you. In other words, it shouldn't be named among us. Just as is suitable with saints. And abusiveness and foolish speaking or ribaldry, sexual jokes which things are not fitting, but thanksgiving instead. This is known by you, that any fornicator or unclean or greedy person who is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of the anointed and of Yahweh. 
No one must deceive you with empty words. For on account of these things, the wrath of Yahweh comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, you must not be partakers with them. And then, in reference to the fact that before they received the gospel, they had been sinners, just like the sons of disobedience. He next wrote, For you were once in darkness, but are now light in the prince. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justness and truth, scrutinizing what is acceptable to the prince. I'm citing the Christogenia New Testament, of course. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even reprove them. For the things being done by them secretly, it is disgraceful even to speak of. Now all things being reproved by the light are made manifest, for everything being made manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awaken you who are sleeping, and rise up from among the dead, and Christ shall shine upon you. A reference to that same light prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee. Saying this, Paul was repeating something he had already explained in chapter 4 of that same epistle, where he wrote, Therefore I say this, and I call you to witness with authority. No longer are you to walk as the nations who walk in the vanity of their minds, being darkened in understanding, being alienated from the life of Yahweh because of the ignorance that is within them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Those who feel no sorrow surrendering themselves to licentiousness, to the practice of all uncleanness with arrogance. So Paul, in a very lengthy way, was teaching the same message that John had taught in a very brief way, in a very concise manner. John himself will repeat this in another different way in verse 9. But for now, he once again makes a statement relating to the purpose of Christ. And you know that he has been made manifest that he may remove errors or sins, and there is no wrongdoing or sin in him. That word hamartia, the noun meaning sin, we've translated here as errors in the plural and wrongdoing in the singular for reasons which we have already discussed, because sin isn't some um, weird ethereal spot on your soul, as I had learned as a young boy in Catholic grade school. Sin is violation of the law. And when you break the law, you're transgressing against your God and your brethren. As we have already enumerated many of the aspects of the nature and purpose of Christ, which had been professed by the apostles, so that we could see what the apostles had believed the Christ to be, and therefore we could understand what John meant by denying that Yahshua is the Christ. Here is yet another which we did not yet discuss, that Christ came into the world to remove sin. Yet in the books of the prophets, it was Yahweh who had promised that he would remove the sins of Israel. So in Isaiah chapter 43, 
After Yahweh told the children of Israel that thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities, you sin so much you wear me out, he promised them that I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. Then again, in Isaiah chapter 44, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. And of course, that is fulfilled in Yahshua Christ when the peoples of Europe and the other white nations of the world turned to Christ in the Christian era and became Christians. Then in Jeremiah chapter 31, in the prophecy concerning the new covenant, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me, though all know him as Yahshua Christ. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Then again, in Jeremiah chapter 33, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. And once more, from Jeremiah chapter 50. In those days, and in that time, saith Yahweh, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found. For I will pardon those whom I reserve. Therefore, once again, Yahshua Christ is Yahweh, who blotted out the transgressions of Jacob for his own sake, and it was pardoned the iniquity of Israel. So in that manner, Christ is their propitiation if they do sin, as John explained in the opening verses of chapter 2 of this epistle. Now John informs his readers that once the children of God accept that their sins have been blotted out in Christ, they are expected to abide in him where he says, Each who is abiding in him does not do wrong. Each who is doing wrong has not seen him, nor does he know him. Twice in our translation here, the verb hamartano, to sin, is to do wrong. By saying each who is doing wrong has not seen him, nor does he know him, John may be referring to the aliens who are not expected to receive the gospel of Christ or to the apostate children of Israel who have not yet heard or accepted his gospel. John is not speaking enigmatically, but rather he is teaching in his own words just what Paul had also taught in Galatians chapter 5, where he wrote, Now I say, you must walk in the Spirit, and desire of the flesh you should not at all fulfill. 
The flesh desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Indeed, these are in opposition to one another, in which case you should not do these things that you desire. But if you are led by the spirit, you are under no law. Manifest are the deeds of the flesh. Such things are fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, use of drugs, hostilities, contention, rivalry, wrath, intrigues, dissensions, sects, envyings, drunkenness, revelries, and things like these, which I have announced to you beforehand, just as I have said before, that they who practice such things shall not inherit Yahweh's kingdom. Now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against such things. But if they of the anointed crucify the flesh, along with those infect affections and those desires, if we live in the Spirit, in the Spirit we should also walk. <clears throat> then, as John informs us, that those who do not abide in Christ do not know him. Paul taught in a different way that we may know Christ, where he said in his similar discourse in Romans chapter 8, that indeed, as many as are led by the Spirit of Yahweh, these are the sons of Yahweh. They are proven to be sons by walking in the Spirit and forsaking the lusts of the flesh. Therefore, by their fruits, by their fruits you know them, therefore you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons in which we cry, Father, Father. That same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh. And if children, then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer together, that also we will be honored together. Here John has spoken of abiding in Christ. And doing that, he evokes the words of Christ in John chapter 15. So we see yet another concept from John's gospel put into practical application in this epistle. There Christ had said, in part, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. You have purified yourselves by believing the gospel by accepting the gospel and departing from sin. As John says here, you have purified yourselves. Abide in me, and I in you, as Paul says, and as we quoted in his epistle to the Corinthians, some of you were some of these things, but you have cleansed yourselves. When you receive the word of Christ, you are clean through the word that he has spoken, because you depart from sin. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abides in the vine, no more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing.
If a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So to abide in Christ is to keep his commandments, which includes his commandment that Christians love one another. Of course, there are many other commandments which Christians should keep, and they are explained elsewhere by both Christ and his apostles, like those lists of things that Paul just rattled off that will prevent you from entering the kingdom of heaven. But you can't do those things in the kingdom of heaven. However, later on in this very epistle, in 1 John chapter 5, the apostle describes how Christians are expected to express their love for one another, where he wrote, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. So that's how we love our brother, by keeping the commandments. That's how we express it. We don't love our brother by kissing his ass. We don't love our brother by showering him with gifts or with money so that we gain his favor, curry his favor, and he's beholden to us. That's not loving our brother. That's hating our brother. We love our brother by keeping the commandments of God. For this is love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Period. In the same manner, the children of God make manifest their righteousness, as John now attests. Children, let no one deceive you. He who is bringing about justice is just, even as he, meaning God, is just. Justice is also found in keeping the commandments of Yahweh. As we read in Isaiah chapter 58, Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice, they take delight in approaching to God. Then, as it is professed in the 119th Psalm, my tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Justification or righteousness being in the eyes of God. So we read in Acts chapter 13 in reference to Christ. Therefore it must be known by you, men, brethren, that through this for you is remission of errors declared, or sins, and because of all whom were not able to be justified by the law of Moses. By this, meaning by Christ, all who are believing are justified. 
But of course, as Christ himself had said, believing in Christ necessitates keeping the commandments, which are also found in the laws of Moses. And in that manner, one may abide in him. Once again, in Romans chapter 8, Paul of Tarsus explained who is justified by God and professed that it is God who justifies, where he wrote, because those whom he has known beforehand, he is also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his son, for him to be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he has appointed beforehand, these he also calls, and those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy. While those whom he deems worthy, these he also honors. Now what may we say in reply to these things? If Yahweh is for us, who is against us? Who indeed spared not his own son, but for all of us handed him over? How then with him will he not favor us in every way? Who shall bring an accusation against the chosen of Yahweh? It is Yahweh who renders justice. Where Yahweh had said in Amos chapter 3, which we have already cited here, that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Only the children of Israel could possibly be those whom Yahweh did foreknow. The word for conform in that passage is sumorphous, which means to be formed together with, or formed like something or someone. Sumorphous, where morphous simply means formed. Thus we read in Isaiah chapter 43, again of the people of the children of Israel, This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. And there are many other times in Isaiah where Yahweh said to Jacob, I have formed you. I have made you. But as Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 2, which we have also already cited here, that since Christ had taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren, we see that the children of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, are indeed formed together with him. Furthermore, the Adamic man having the Spirit of God. We read in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. But conforming ourselves to Christ is also through obedience. As Paul had urged in Romans chapter 12, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is also the prophecy destiny of the children of Israel. As it was written concerning them alone in Isaiah chapter 45, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. 
Paul also cited this passage in Romans chapter 14. Then, in that same place in Isaiah, it was promised, as we have also already cited, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Yahweh also decides who is justified, and men cannot justify themselves by their conduct alone. So where we read that whom Yahweh foreknew, that they are justified, that they are appointed beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son. That's speaking of the children of Israel right from the words of the prophets. And they are the called, and they are the chosen, and none of those things can possibly apply to anybody else. They are the appointed. It was they of whom all these things were spoken in the Old Testament prophets. And all of those things which Yahweh did, he announced in the Old Testament prophets. He knew Israel beforehand. He said that Israel would be conformed. The children of Israel are the brethren, the many brethren, among whom Christ is firstborn. The children of Israel were appointed beforehand. The children of Israel were called. The children of Israel were deemed worthy. And the children of Israel are promised to share in his honor at the end of days. Period. Nobody else. Ever. Now we are going to skip ahead to verse 9. And we will return at this point in our next presentation, as verse 8 turns us away from discussing the children of God and compels us to discuss the children of the devil, something which we don't want to do yet, but we will do, Yahweh willing, next week. So after that turn, John returns to the children of God and he says, each who has been born from of Yahweh does not create wrongdoing, because his seed abides in him, and he is not able to do wrong, because from Yahweh he has been born. And John must mean something different than just sinning, because he uses that verb, poieo, along with the noun for sin, to describe an author of wrongdoing, or perhaps, in a slightly weaker sense, one who practices wrongdoing, as if it's at a run-of-the-mill exercise for them. And we will delve into that aspect of this epistle in greater detail next week. When Adam sinned, after his punishment was announced, we read in Genesis chapter 3, And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Yahshua Christ is the tree of life. <clears throat> he is the true vine. And his people being branches on that vine, to abide on the vine, 
is to love one's own people, which is also to grasp onto the tree of life. Adam was the son of God, and all of his descendants are also children of God for that reason. As Paul of Tarsus had told the Athenians, they were not Israelites. The Athenians were Ionian Greeks. And therefore, he nevertheless told them that they were descendants of God. But being Ionian Greeks, they were descendants of Javan, the Japetite from Genesis chapter 10. But it's recorded in Acts chapter 17 that Paul told them, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring, referring to the Athenians. The Hebrews and Persians both called the Ionian Greeks Yavana, which is Javan, Genesis chapter 10, verse 4, I believe. I could be wrong. It's around there, maybe verse 2. Abiding on the vine. One loves his own people and one does not commit fornication, as Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, having committed fornication. Fornication is the going after of strange or different flesh, as the Apostle Jude described in his lone epistle. And Paul of Tarsus agrees in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he used the same word to describe the race-mixing event at Balpeor. Described or, or recorded, I should say, in Numbers chapter 25, where the men of Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. In an admonishment in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, Your souls having been purified, speaking of the same things that we've cited from John here and to which we compared some of the writings of Paul, your souls having been purified in the obedience of the truth for brotherly love without hypocrisy, because that requires keeping the commandments, from of a pure heart, you should love one another earnestly, being engendered or begotten, perhaps, being engendered from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible, by the word of Yahweh who lives and abides, since all flesh is his grass and all of its glory as a flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But that which is spoken by Yahweh abides for eternity. Citing the Christogenia New Testament. Now this is that which is spoken which is announced to you. And while all flesh dies, men with the spirit of Yahweh have eternal spirits. Having been made in the image of God's own eternity. But the others are twice dead, plucked up by the roots, as Jude described them in his epistle. So, when their tree is cut down, they are just as dead in the spirit as they would be in the flesh. In the wisdom of Solomon, 
we see a description of the fate of the ungodly or impious in Wisdom chapter 3. And this is the pattern which the scripture lays out. This is the end of the ungodly or the end of the wicked. But the ungodly shall be punished according to their own imaginations, which have neglected the righteous and forsaken the Lord. Here we see that these were children of God who had turned their backs on their own people. So Solomon continues and says, For whoso despises wisdom and nurture, he is miserable, and their hope is vain, their labors unfruitful, and their works unprofitable. <clears throat> their wives are foolish, and their children wicked. Their offspring is cursed. So evidently, perhaps the women themselves are not necessarily foolish, but the choice of wives made by the wicked men is foolish because they turn their backs on their own people. And for that, for that reason, the children are cursed. Then, after putting these in contrast with the pious, Solomon continues to speak of the impious once again. And he says, As for the children of adulterers, a word which was often also used in Greek writings of race mixing, they shall not come to their perfection, and the seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. The seed of an unrighteous bed would be the children of marriages which are contrary to the law of God, who had forbidden the children of Israel from race-mixing fornication and had often condemned them for it, as he did in Numbers chapter 25. Then, returning to the impious once again, further on in chapter 4, Solomon verifies our interpretation of his words, and he says, the topic not having changed, but the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. For though they flourish in branches for a time, yet standing not last, or not standing firmly, they shall be shaken with the wind, and through the force of winds they shall be rooted out. That last statement evokes language from Jude in his own condemnation of the wicked, who are twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus had said of the race-mixing Esau in Hebrews chapter 12, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And as a digression, there's a little contention over that verse because denominational commentators, mainstream commentators will say that Esau wasn't a fornicator, he was a profane person because of that word or. 
that's in between fornicator and profane person. But I have news for them. And you could find this right in the pages of Liddell and Scott in their lexicon under the definition for or. For that word or, which is a, it's just a. In Greek, or was not conjunctive. It did not disjoin the two words which are on either side of it. It joined the words. It wasn't one or the other. It was either one or both because it was adjunctive. It connected those words. It didn't disjoin them. So the grammar in Greek with that word or, it works differently than in English. And Paul, by having used it, is saying that Esau was a fornicator and a profane person. But using an, using Esau as an example, Paul is saying you shouldn't be one or the other. But Esau was both. Because that word actually joins those ideas in Greek. It doesn't distinguish between them like it does in English. So, that being said, the children of Esau from whom was descended many of the Judeans of the time of Christ, were bastards, since they were Canaanites. And they were not, for that reason, they were not true children of Abraham. The Pharisees understood this when they argued with Christ, as it is recorded in John chapter 8. And he told them that they were not true children of Abraham. And they claimed in turn that they were not children of fornication. But in fact, the record exposes them as Edomites and not Israelites, and they were indeed children of fornication, even if they did not understand that. For that reason, because they were not his sheep, they were rejected by Christ. Christ rejected them before they rejected him. Therefore, Paul had also said in Hebrews chapter 12, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. And while the wicked may sometimes suffer, they are not chastised, as chastisement is punishment for correction, which, if the wicked suffer, it is only for their destruction. That is another lesson from the wisdom of Solomon. But as John had said here, one born of God cannot do wrong because his seed abides in him. It is Yahweh God who declares what is good. And when he created the Adamic man, he declared that his creation is good. As we read in Genesis chapter 1, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and morning were the sixth day. So Paul of Tarsus said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. As that is the plan of God from the beginning. And bastards have no place in that creation. 
We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where Solomon speaks about the vanity of life, and he says, I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. If it's being exercised, if it's exercised, then there must be a reason and an outcome for the exercise. Likewise, we read in Romans chapter 8, where Paul was speaking in reference to the particular Adamic creation, as opposed to other things which Yahweh had created. And he said, Therefore, I consider that the happenstances of the present time are not of value, looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness, or to vanity, if you will. The creation was subjected not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom and honor of the children of Yahweh. If one is what God had created, an Adamic man whose seed is in him, meaning that he is not a bastard, then one is what God had created and has the Spirit of God and the promises of Christ in Christ of eternal life. And one cannot do wrong for reasons which we shall discuss when we return in our next presentation concerning the children of the devil. We have already cited Wisdom Chapter 2 concerning man and the image of God's eternity. Here in verse 8 of this chapter, John declares that for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So in the very next verse of that same chapter of Wisdom, Wisdom Chapter 2, we read, Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that hold of his side do find it. By this we see what works Christ came to destroy, and as the Adamic man was created to be immortal, in the destruction of those works, all of Adam shall be made alive, as Paul had said. So long as one is of Adam, that his seed is in him. If there is some other seed in him, then he is a bastard and not a son. We shall return to this discussion, Yahweh willing, as soon as next Friday. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.